Hello, I'm Elizabeth, an obsessive backyard gardener who might be able to offer you a couple of tips. And I'm Keith, a landscape consultant, and I'm also passionate about gardening. The one thing we both have in common is muddy muddy boots. boots. Welcome to another Q&A. As always, our listeners' questions cover a wide range of topics. Today, we chat about wicking beds to spring bulb pests to jacaranda trees and even impulse plant shopping. So let's get started and make sure to listen out for your name at the end of the podcast as you may be the winner of this month's prize from The Plant Runner. Okay, question number one for Keith is from Martin, who would like to know why the jacaranda trees in Tasmania still have leaves in the middle of winter despite being deciduous, Keith. Right. Well, let's just sort that one out straight away. Jacarandas are not deciduous in their home country, right? So they're a native plant to the tropical and subtropical regions of the Americas, notably South America. Mm. Right. In these conditions, they're classified as an evergreen tree. Mm. It's a bit (laughs) different in Tasmania. However, in the cooler climates, they can be deciduous, particularly when they're young. Um, But as they grow in age, they can be totally evergreen. And that's what I'm suggesting to Martin is that he's seeing a a plant that is adapted to the climate that he's living in Mm. and therefore uh, with its maturity is therefore now becoming more evergreen than than, than right. a deciduous thing. So they they can actually, um, with age, they can actually tolerate frosts down to minus seven degrees, mm. all right? So that's quite a hardy plant. Mm. But as I said, in their young form, they do drop their leaves because they're trying to acclimatise to their environment. Right. Um, they flower in the summer months and they're associated here in Australia with Christmas because of that. Beautiful so too. a beautiful plant. A beautiful Love them. Flowers. My mother's favourite plant. And I think I, I put four along her side boundary at, at her place and uh, she just Made her happy it. forever. Made her happy. Yeah, that's lovely. Okay, question number two is from Katrina. I've just finished making a couple of wicking beds and was wondering if I need to put worms in them and if there is anything I shouldn't use on them, such as fertilisers, etc. Also, do I space plants normally or can I plant them closer together? Right, Katrina, there's no need to, to uh, put worms into a wicking bed system. They may colonise the soil profile naturally and they, that, that may come in from eggs that might be in, in compost or something else. So they'll actually migrate into those conditions. So you don't need to add them. And a wicking bed system is a system where you're, you're using water that's going to, to um, come up through the soil profile, to wick up through the so- soil profile, and you must have a good quality um, soil profile in there. So lots and lots of compost. And if you use lots and lots of compost, and keep adding to it all the time um, and use things like uh, hoof-flung dung, which makes a fabulous mulch, mm-hmm. um, and, and you do that at, at, at the changeover of all the vegetable seasons or the vegetable types you're putting in, always put the hoof-flung dung down over the top. Not that we're getting money out of hoof-flung dung or neutral. neutral. We don't, but we'd like to, but never mind. Um, and as far as planting seedlings closer together, yes, you can. If you've got a wicking bed system and you're putting lots and lots of goodness into it, you've got a great soil. You've got a soil that has a higher um, compost component than most soils around, which is between 1% and 2 th- two to 3% of, of compost in soils. So you're getting a, a really, really high composted soil. Um, 
what I tend to do with with my beds, and they're not wicking, um, but they're raised beds and they're full of good composted soil and recomposted all the time, I always plant my 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 vegetable seedlings quite tight and I do that for, for a particular reason there's only two of us really that are harvesting things like cauliflower so I don't want a great big enormous head that you cut it in half and have it for meal then forget it and chuck it in the fridge and throw it out a month later yeah. By planting them close together, you get a much tighter, more compact form of um, of, a, of a vegetable head. Oh. And the same thing goes with broccoli. Um, and if you're going to grow broccoli in, in a wicking bed, go for green sprouting broccoli because once you've harvested the main head, you'll get lots and lots of side shoots that will keep you fed for ages. Yeah. But as far as the worms go, they'll come into that soil naturally. They'll be added by little eggs that come in with the compost. So don't add... Don't add, add um, worms into it. They'll come there naturally. Fantastic. Now, Roz has two questions about her fajoa tree. Question number one. I've recently bought a fajoa tree. Duffy is the name of the variety, but I've heard that it is best to have two different fajoa trees for good pollination and a larger crop. Can I just can I choose just any other variety as a pollinating partner or are there particular varieties that should be used? If so, how can I find out which ones are suitable? Right. Well, I'll tell you which ones are suitable. Yes, you do need another pollinator, and you should have a, have a, another pollinator with plants that don't need pollinating because you'll get a greater crop. So you've got the Fajoa Duffy, and the variety to pollinate that is Apollo, and there's another variety called Mammoth or Nazamatsi which is another one. And if you check out Daly's Fruit Tree Nursery, which are up in the border of New South Wales, Queensland, up that way somewhere, they'll have the varieties there. One thing that we, we learned from um, one of our former guests on our on our programs here was Phil Shepherd, And he always said that if you can find out the parent plant, so whether it was a really good cropping plant, you're setting yourself up for a a good success with those sorts of things. Now, when it comes to, because um, the genes being passed on, I get good genes. So when it comes to planting um, two plants into the one hile, I would do that for certain fruit trees, deciduous fruit trees, um, and I do that with plums. So I'll have a couple of blood plums. I'll have a satsuma and a Santa Rosa in the same hole. But when it comes to an evergreen form, and because we're going to be using a pollinator, you don't know what the form and vigour is of that one. So you might find that they compete too much together in the same hole. Oh, so you thought that she – oh, that's right, because she says later – I haven't actually said this yet – Oh. To save space, can I plant two fajoa trees in the same hole? Keith's yeah. just getting a little ahead of I'm himself I'm getting ahead here. of myself. So yeah. he's going to now answer that question again. <laughs> yeah. So, no, you don't go planting the, the two plants into the one hole. Um, set it up so that you've got two plants in close proximity to each other so that you've got that pollination process happening. And when I say close proximity, could be the front yard, could be the backyard, doesn't matter. Right. It, the, the bees will get to them because they'll be flowering at the same time. That's what a cross pollinator is all about. Um, but no, don't not do them in the same hole because you don't know how the form and vigour of, of one versus the other. What is Fajoa? What is a Fajoa like? Um, Fajoa is, is uh, the one that, that um, Ros is talking about. Is, is like it's like a kiwi fruit in terms of the shape and size, except it's got a it doesn't have a fur on the skin. Um, when you sh when you sh slice it through, it's got a fruit saladly sort of a flavour. It's quite a nice plant. Yeah. Um, I I got some for my my middle boy's property. Um, and I think for the first couple of years, they never got any fruits from it. 
and they couldn't work out why until one day they went outside and they saw their son Archer picking the flowers and eating oh, the flowers. Oh, he thought that was what he was supposed to do. Or he no, <laughs> because you can actually eat the flowers. They are absolutely stunning. Oh. So he tried the flowers and, and he, he was hooked stop, on them. And then he never got any fruit. <laughs> so he never Fair got any fruit enough. for quite a few years. Oh, yeah. Okay, now we have a question from Lisa, also related to fruit trees. I have an orchard of old fruit trees that I'm busy learning about. Last year, I did my best to mix up Bordeaux spray and apply it with a sprayer. I'm not sure that I was very good at it because I kept gunking up the sprayer. Could you please run through the when, what and how for doing this as efficiently and effectively as possible? There are about 40 trees to spray and they are on a slope, so it's a bit of an arduous task. Okay, so Bordeaux spray is a real old-fashioned spray. It comes from copper sulfate and lime, or which is actually builder's lime or, or um, um, hydrated lime or calcium hydroxide is the actual proper term. And they used to mix it up in, in into a into a, a certain parts, and they just go out and spray. Absolutely fantastic um, spray because the actual lime carried the copper sulfate, and because it's a it's it's a, a lime base, as it dried out. It stuck to the actual bark of the plant. And then when the fungus came out through that, it was transformed onto the fungus and just killed them straight away. So if you're going to use Bordeaux spray, um, then what you need to do is you need to work out how much is going into your spray unit. So whatever, if you're going to use a five liter sprayer, work out how many, how many spoonfuls or how many grams you're putting in, mix it into a small container and put water with that and mix it up so that you've got this thick paste. And then as as you are filling up your spray unit, turn the hose on and then gently tip this in at the same time so that it's, it, it's, it's being, you know, mixed in there. And then when you're actually out in the field spraying it, keep agitating it, keep giving it a shake and keep those particles in there and then you shouldn't have a problem. Me, I wouldn't bother. I would use co-side or lime sulphur. Um, Sounds one of those, easier. And they're much much easier to mix because they're they're more a wettable solution. That's why people have gone to them. Um, so try either try either the um, the co-side or the lime sulphur. Um, and then with all your, your sprays that you're using, when you've finished, clean them out. You pump them through until the water's coming out, clean through your spray units, and then they'll be set up for the next time you use them. Mm-hmm. And uh, always mark what you've put on them, whether it's been a herbicide or a mm-hmm. fungicide or pesticide or whatever, because uh, you don't want to be having any leaching problems killing your plants. plants. So I hope that sorts all that out. But she says, could you please run through the when, what, and how? Right, so well, the when, what, when, and how. Okay, so with with co-side, you should be spraying um, before the buds start to come on. So you give them a spray as the plant is dormant in, in, say, late winter. And then as the buds start to, to, to swell up, then you can spray them again at the pink bud stage or the white bud stage, whatever the flower bud stage, but not when they're open. And if you do that, you've got to really spray them to the stage of wetting them thoroughly. So if you're standing on one side of the, of the, the, the tree, don't forget, stand on the opposite side and spray the, the other half of the tree that you probably missed on the first spray. You've got to make sure that you've thoroughly covered the whole plant because otherwise you're, uh, you know, you, you're going to get those problems. Our next question is from Georgina, who is a little bit concerned. What is eating my daffodil flowers, she says in capital letters, <laughs> and how do I stop them? I've waited with eager patience for my babies to flower, and now this. 
possums, slugs, snails. I haven't seen any of these. What could it be? Um, unless you're out all night, you don't know whether it's possums or or, or uh, rats because both of those will, will eat the flowers because they're quite a tasty little treat. Um, now, we had we had a picture sent through which I had a little look at and um, they look like teeth marks to me. Oh. So they're, they're, it's, a, it's a, a chewing little animal, I think, that, that um, has set that problem. So... Uh, uh, the only way you can you can really look after them is is to isolate them in some way, put a cage over them, um, and take them, particularly at night, put a cage over them. Yeah. It's I don't believe it's sl- snails or slugs, okay. um, because it's a different cut. A snail and a slug will, will, will start on a margin and just eat its way through and then come back on itself. So it's it's like a a soft line rather than a, a, a set of chewy marks from their okay. little nippers. So it doesn't matter. Possums or rats. You could have them out during the day and then cover them at night. Yeah, cover them up at night. So you're not missing out. Okay, now we have one from Ainsley. Would seaside daisies survive if kangaroos and rabbits are present? I'd like to plant them at the front of my post and rail fence. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, I have not heard of any tests being done to know whether the uh, the seaside daisy um, is susceptible susceptible to rabbits, guinea pigs, possums, kangaroos, wallabies, or what. So I don't know. So what I would suggest you do is you do the trialling yourself. So go and buy a couple of plants and put them in a, a, a distance apart from one another and just have a look at how they perform. And then if they do perform and they're not being eaten and, and chewed by pests and disease and things around the area, then you can actually start to cut those plants up and plant them as Mm. Little, you know, Transplant liftings. them, divide yeah. them, yeah. So divide them up and, and stick them along the front of your fence and that way you'll, you'll, it'll just take over. Mm. But the, the seaside daisy is, is a really fabulous little plant. It looks brilliant. Um, and, and I don't know that, um, that, that it's going to be a, a problem because I've seen it around so many places and it doesn't look like it's chewed or anything else. Mm-hmm. So. Give, just give it a go. You know, you'll be the tester. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Good luck with that, Ainsley. Now, this one is from Mira, and she says, I'm loving all the content about designing gardens, but as an avid impulse plant shopper, I might more often than not find myself purchasing several plants that were not on the shopping list. How do you go about designing a garden that still allows for new plant experimenting without the garden getting so mixed and matched and disorderly? Well, You've already sort of solved the problem straight away in, in what you said there. How do you go about designing a garden? And it's the word designing that, that uh, you need to sort of embrace. So what I would always suggest you do is you do a plan. Um, and if you go out and measure the area that you're wanting to plant out um, and do it in a scale, so and that scale might be a, a, a rule of scales where one centimetre equals one metre, um, and that's a that's a good size to work with. So you need to you, you need to have a plan to start off with, and then you can then put in the plants that that you like within those within that design that you've, you've got there. So you put those in, and then what you need to do is you need to go out and do a bit of research. And Google is a great little tool that you can actually get. Google, you know, you're looking at a particular plant, say um, Mexican sage, for instance. Google it, and it'll tell you the size and the width of it. And then you use a template you can buy from Officeworks. It's got a whole series of different size circles. Go to the one that represents the size of the plant that you want to put in there, and you put a circle in that space 
and you might want to put two or three little circles because I hate one single plant going in. I like to have big drifts of plants. So put, you know, put in three or four or five nice. or seven. Yep. Doesn't matter. Um, and then another great thing to do then is when you're doing that, have beside you a set of colored pencils and pick up the pencil that corresponds to the flower color and color that in. And then have a look at the plant you're going to put next to it. So you you, you might you, you might have a purple plant. You might not decide to put a a pink plant next to it. You might decide to you want a yellow plant next to it. So do a bit of research. You know something like a Rudbeckia, for instance, a beautiful Goldstern um, has a beautiful yellow flower, and the size of its plant. Google the size and draw the circles of those in around it. And then if you want to create a garden of cool colours, put them all on one side, and then divide that section up by using a grey foliage plant. Grey foliage softens down the colours and, and isolates them. So it's not going from a hot colour to a cold colour and you've got this clash. You've got this beautiful softening in between them. Oh. So that's that's how I, I do all my, my work. Um, and then to really create a bit more interest, mix up the foliage forms. Think about putting in some beautiful grasses, for instance. Things like Miscanthus has a whole range of, of beautiful grasses. Um, Calamagrostis, Stipers. Have a look what's available. Um, and I think we've got a question coming up about some of those, which we'll, we'll talk a bit later on about, I think. So that's the way that I do it. Um, and if you, if you do it on a planned basis, and, and, and you stand back in, in the middle of summer and you look at that garden, you say, gee, was, I could probably do a little bit better than that. Well, what an opportunity. Mm. Cut those out and redo them. Mm. I mean, I do it every year to my front garden. Mm. Pull out all the plants that, that, that I don't like and replant them with the other ones that I haven't tried and see how that works. It's that's, just a great way of doing it. That's a good design. That's good advice, Keith. I'm just I was listening to that. Intently, because I've got to do that with my own garden. So thank you for that. I like the idea of the colour pencils and the circles and all that stuff. Great. That's great. Okay, the last question today is from Laura, and this is a bit of a tough one. Mm. She says, please don't promote grasses. Pampas grass and canna lilies are destroying the great southern of WA. Pampas is a favourite florist for weddings, but the dumped bouquets are so noxious to our ecosystem and waterways. Please, can you help educate people on how to properly care and dispose of these weeds so us farmers don't need to use more chemicals than necessary? So many graduates are pushing the Pieto Duf naturalistic method with proper consideration, uh, sorry, without proper consideration Mm. of how certain grasses will cause so much destruction. Please, can you help? Okay, um, with, with, as far as Piet goes, um, I think his, his designs and his layouts can be absolutely stunning. And there is a, um, a particular walked, um, garden of, that he created in Manhattan on an old um, railway line and it has more people visiting it and walking through it than you could poke a stick at. And the reason it works and it, and it works so effectively is because he has used plants in there that are indigenous to the, 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 the locale. So this, that doesn't become a problem. Now, I, I would never in my whole life have ever specified pampas grass in anything. I think it is 
one of the most revolting things and one of the hardest things to get rid of except with a large blowtorch and half a gallon of petrol or something. It's an absolute shocker. And yes, it is problematic. But where I can't understand here is that if you if you're having someone using pampas grass in WA, I would consider that, that you need to speak to the agricultural department because those sorts of plants should not be coming in. Now, if we take mail order companies, of, of which um, I used to be belong with with the major one, which was the Diggers Club, um, they have a whole list of, of plants in their catalogues, and they will state whether they can send those interstate and to which states they can send them. And there's an awful lot of plants that won't go into WA, won't go into Tasmania, um, because they can be weedy. Now, when it comes to designing gardens, I use a, a lot of grasses now because I think they're an absolute stunning plant. And the sorts of grasses that I use, um, it, let's just take miscanthus, for instance. There is miscanthus sinensis, which is the true form of, of, of that particular grass. But then uh, and I use the hybridized forms of those. So there's flamingo, there's cerebland, there is Kleine Fontaine. There's a whole range of these particular grasses that are hybridized. Hybrid plants will not be weedy because they are either sterile in the general form. So they're not, they're not going to cause a problem. So there's an awful lot of beautiful grasses that are now hybridised that are not going to be a problematic grass in anyone's garden. Um, simple, I think. I think you've made a point there, and I hope that that's uh, really clear to Laura. It should be. It was very clear to me. So thank you, Keith. Okay, I think that's all we have time for. It is. Uh, um, another, another great Q&A session, I think, Keith, don't you? I love the questions. They're fabulous. Keep them coming. <laughs> yeah, please, more, more, more. Thank you so much, Keith, and thank you to our listeners for sending in those wonderful questions. Now it is the time to announce the winner of this month's fabulous prize from The Plant Runner. And the prize this week goes to Lisa. I think we need to give her a break from the huge job of looking after her 40 fruit trees. I know that Keith <laughs> knows all about that because we've got 70 of his own, haven't you? 71. 71 now. Mm. So we'll be in contact with you shortly, Lisa. Thank you again so much to the team at The Plant Runner for the fabulous monthly Q&A prize. And make sure to visit theplantrunner.com. Thank you for listening to Muddy Boots. For more information on today's podcast, please go to muddyboots.net.au and happy gardening.